everybody, our next guest, Jeff Doffler, wrote a book called Sobriety, A Journey of Recovery Through the Psalms. In his own words, he says, many people suffering from the disease of addiction who want to find lasting sobriety do not have much positive experience with religion. And while I have great respect for Alcoholics Anonymous and other 12-step programs, which clearly state they are spiritual programs, their literature provides little in the way of guidance on how to develop and strengthen that all-important relationship with the higher power. Perhaps by sharing my own experience with the Psalms, I could help others. And so the idea for the book Sobriety was born. That's up next on Recovery Talks, the podcast. From the birthplace of modern recovery, Akron, Ohio, welcome to Rockin' Recovery. Recovery Talks, the podcast. Dedicated to sharing stories and amplifying the voices of those on the front lines in the recovery movement. Our commitment to you? To always deliver straight up sober talk with the sincere promise of a safe, stigma and judgment free zone. Recovery Talks, right now. So welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of Recovery Talks, the podcast. My guest is Jeff Dolphin. Jeff, you know, we have a lot in common, and there's three things in common that I see. Number one, one of the soft ones is we share the same haircut. You know what I mean? <laughs> I love you already, man. You know, but the other thing is we're, we're both 12-step guys, Ohio guys. You know, and uh, one of the things we also share is we spend time working in detox facilities. And that is um, a, a lot of people say, well, why do you go do that? And I say, well, because I will always remember where I was and who I was when I, when I go to do that. And I can never forget what it was like for me to feel that, that enormous despair of knowing that this is it. I'm in, I'm in detox. There's no more fun here. Which way do you put this thing on anyway, right? And just, you know, I, I think probably one of my most transformational moments happened when I was in that facility at St. Thomas Hospital where I realized this is it, you know, this is it, man. You know what I mean? And it wasn't like I had, you know, done anything, you know, illegal or gotten cops or anything like that involved, but it was just that utterly, this is the lowest moment of my life. Here I am in a medical facility because I couldn't fix it. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I think sometimes if I'm talking to somebody who's not one of us about doing that, they always want to say, oh, what a wonderful thing. That's so kind that you're doing, you know, way to help other people. And, and, and yeah, maybe it's that on the surface, but I can relate so much to what you're saying. I mean, to, to walk into a room and look at faces of people who are absolutely at the rock bottom, at least I hope for them it's the rock bottom. Right. And, and remember that feeling, remember what was going on in my life what was left of it anyway. And yeah, it's just that I never want to go back. You know, that's it's yeah. such a reinforcement. If while we're there, we can share something that's that gives somebody hope, that gives somebody an idea that, hey, this isn't the end. There's more. There is a solution. If I could just find it, find somebody to help me uh, move forward. Yeah. I'm always struck by the the feeling of gratitude that I get when I get to leave that ward. And I go down at St. Thomas and I go out into my car and I get in my car and I always have a moment of pause to find, you know, that grateful feeling to say, I get to go home and I'm, and I'm okay. And I'm okay. And, you know, maybe there's, you know, we talked a little bit about earlier in our pre-conversation about, you know, life isn't, life isn't perfect when you get sober. You know, life still shows up. 
But I think the moment where you where you can go and do service like that and you can see the intensity of the pain of someone who's involved at the bottom of the depths of addiction and alcoholism or drug addiction, and then you can say, that was me, man. Now, but I'm not there anymore. That's not me anymore, you know? You know, it's interesting. I was thinking about that. It's, uh, you know, almost the end of March and spring, you can start to feel, you know, warmer temperatures some days and plants are coming back and all of that. But, you know, spring, it, it, we, we often think about it as new beginnings. It's new life. It's things being reborn. And, and, and there's definitely a parallel to recovery with that. But spring also brings storms. It's not just smooth sailing, right? And we, we've got to expect that as we recover as well. It's, it's not going to be a perfect life. It's, we're still going to feel pain. We're still going to go through tough times and sorrow. The good news for me is that when that happens... I don't have to drink and make it worse. People have been asking me lately, you know, well, how are you doing today? And I said, you know what, I'm, I'm not drinking today. And that's the best part of all. You know, I, I didn't feel a need to make it feel better by going out and, and, you know, doing a pint of absolute Mandarin, yeah. you know, which would have been in a pack of Marlboro Lights, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. $16.83. How do you always remember the amount, right? That it cost you, <laughs> oh, you know, all I had to have was a 20 on me and I was good. I was good to go. But man, we're here to talk, uh, you know, about your book. But before we get into that, I kind of want to hear a little bit about your story. How did we get here talking about about recovery and, and how did it work for you? What was Jeff like before Jeff got sober? Life can be a strange and winding road, right? Yeah. Without going all the way back, I drank kind of like a binge drinker for a lot of my early days. I suppose I knew there was something wrong with the way that I thought about alcohol mm. because I never had that control. You know, I'd start drinking and I never wanted to stop. That was the problem. And early on, I sort of realized that if I didn't do something about this, if I didn't find a way to slow this down, then all these other things that I wanted to do in life were going to be really tough to achieve. And, and for a time, those things were more important to me than drinking. And, and I, I actually went long periods in my early adulthood where I drank rarely, if at all. And then when I did drink, <laughs> I made it count. But it was really closer to, you know, when I got to my, I guess, late 30s, early 40s, when it started becoming a daily thing. And, and, and I started looking for excuses, you know, it's like, okay, well, what are these, we, we make all these crazy justifications in our head. I remember my dad had had some heart issues and it kind of runs in my family. And, and I read this article about how, well, you know, red wine is really good for a defense against heart disease. And I thought, oh yeah, absolutely. I should have, I should have some wine every day. <laughs> right. And so is grape juice, but we never thought about that. Right? Skip that article, man. <laughs> so, so yeah, so I started in and I'd, I'd have a glass of wine in the evening and that was frustrating. So I had two glasses of wine in the evening and that was frustrating. So, you know, I'd find a way to sneak off from, you know, work at lunchtime and, and make sure I could drink during the day. And it just, it, it kind of built and built and built to the point where I was feeling these things. And, 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 and I always kind of had this sense, and I've heard, you know, other alcoholics and addicts say the same thing that, 
I, I never quite felt like I fit. I, I felt like I was in some way a fraud that the other shoe was going to drop and I'd walk in one day and they'd all say, oh, we know been tricking us the whole time. And, and it just this, this anxiety that, you know, from life that uh, a lot of people can manage. I couldn't manage it without drinking. And I would feel these things. And so I would drink to get rid of those feelings. And then I'd get drunk and I would do things that I'd either have to lie about or, you know, caused more problems. And then I'd drink more. And eventually it just got to the point where I couldn't get started in the morning without a drink. It's the day drinking, I think, that a lot of us talk about that are like, that's the kind of like they shift into a different gear is when we when we're starting earlier in the day. And, you know, it's one thing I hear a lot of former alcoholics and addicts say, you know, I, I told myself I wouldn't do it and then I couldn't not do it. And that was really the turning point for them. But that happens to, a, you know, a lot of people and they can still manage it. Did you manage it? I mean, were you able to be employed and show up and, and do the thing? And everybody was like, hey, it's he's okay. He just kind of does, he just drinks. And that's okay because people sometimes drink, right? Were you one of those guys, you think, Tissom? I, th- I think I was that way for a long time. And actually, I always swore that I would never let it affect my job. Right, right. I'm, I was never going to play on, get drunk on stage. Oh, no, because that'll be it. Then I'll know. Then I'll know. Right? The devil got in me, right? Whatever. Yeah. Right? No, exactly. Already by this point, I had an OVI. I had ruined relationships and hurt a lot of the people I cared about most in the world, but I wasn't going to let it affect my job. That's kind of where I was in my head, that if I could just continue down that path. Yeah. And I wasn't really an alcoholic. I just needed, yeah, man, if you had the problems I had, you'd drink the way I drank is what I thought. Right. And, and, and it was okay because, you know, we weren't bad people. Yeah. Right? We weren't, you know, we weren't hurting anybody. If we were hurting anybody, it was ourselves, you know? So was there, was there a crash moment where you felt like, okay, this is it. I got to do something. Turning point. Light goes on. I had a moment that should have been a crash moment <laughs> and uh, where it finally did affect my job in a big way. There was a big event that I was responsible for and this kind of cocktail party that I went to and then a dinner after that and then back to the bar after that. And I could feel a switch flipping in me that I knew that, you know, I had to get away from the people that I work with. I should have just gone to the hotel room and gone to bed, but instead I walked out of that hotel, went to another bar. The next thing I remember, I wake up, I'm laying on my bed in the hotel room, clothes still on, sun shining, and I look at the clock. The event I was responsible for started two hours ago. Oh, dear God. Yeah. Needless to say, people weren't thrilled. I should have lost my job then, but I didn't. And, you know, went into an employee assistance program and decided I'd give uh, AA a try, went to two meetings, and I just wasn't ready to let go. I just still, I still thought, I can control this. I can handle this myself. But the reality was I couldn't. (laughs) 
In, in the 12-step program, there's a lot of different opinions about how we should talk about being in a 12-step program. So I've always been really cautious about, about that because I just want to be respectful. you know. And I know that different people have different views about it. Some people use Facebook and they're like, hey, I just celebrated a big deal or hey, last night at the meeting. And I, you know, I'm not one of those guys, but I, I'm not afraid to tell people that, you know, I'm a 12-stepper. You know, and if you know what that means, that means I go to AA meetings. And what was different about that to me, and there's a couple things I, I needed to, to understand about it, is those meetings are just voluntary gatherings of people. And sometimes they're not the right one. Sometimes they are. And sometimes they're very different. People from outside of that program ask me a lot about it. You know, and I, and I can say, I can tell you what I, about me. I can't tell you about anybody else that goes there or what anybody else does. But I can tell you that, that it's kind of like church a little bit. You know what I mean? You know, yeah. Is there that crazy person that wears coats in the summer, that sings badly, that, want, that you kind of want to avoid that conversation with? Are they there? Yes. But they're also at work. They're also at school. They're everywhere. So it's no different than anything else. But the biggest thing about a community program like that, a 12-step program, is that you can, you can have an opportunity to find your tribe of people. And you can if you're looking for it. And I think that's the biggest thing that changed for me. So you, you did that. And, you know, obviously, from what I understand from our discussions is that inspires you to, to start looking in a deeper sense when we talk about higher power, which, by the way, we don't talk about that much on this podcast. And I don't know if it's been purposeful or, or not. And that's why I'm really so glad to have you today as a, as a guest, because I just feel that that's an important component to my recovery, a sense of what a higher power is. I don't define it for other people. It's personal, it's private to me. But I do know that that's an important part. But what I do like about what you say, and if I could just quote you a little bit from one of your blogs, many people suffering from the disease of addiction who want to find lasting sobriety do not have a positive experience with religion. And while you say, I have had great respects for AA and other 12-step programs, which clearly state they are spiritual programs, their literature provides little in the way of guidance on how to develop and strengthen that all-important relationship with a higher power. I'm so glad to have you here today so you can talk about that for people who that is part of their experience or you know have a yearning to understand that because like a lot of us, we grew up with a, a time of where religion may have been something we didn't really understand. Um, maybe we were sort of, it was a, a social component of the fabric of where we went to school or our parents or our neighborhoods. You know, I grew up in a Catholic neighborhood, went to Catholic church and the whole thing. And I know all of us kind of like, we got to go to church, I want to go to church. But, you know, we felt a part of something, too. So that was cool. You know, it really was cool. Um, somehow, some way along the way, that changed for me. How did you get to the place after you had the life crash and you got into a recovery program? How did you start the, the road down to looking into where you had come from and to find out where you were going to eventually be? That's interesting to me. In a sense, the seeds of that were planted in my past, even though I rebelled against those things. You know, I, I happen to be a preacher's kid. So it's, um, hmm. you know, I grew up in an environment where religion was very important. Right. And, right. And, and I learned a lot about it as a kid, but it also became something that I rebelled against. Is growing up as a preacher is it kind of like being, you know, a, a famous baseball player's son, or, or, or you know, because I always <laughs> thought like those poor kids, their dad is the guy; they can't do anything, they can't get in any kind of trouble. You know what I mean? <laughs> there, there was a pretty stringent uh, community expectation that I'd behave myself, which I 
which I violated on many occasions. <laughs> but, uh, but I, you know, I was actually talking to a guy who runs a, a program for faith and addiction the other day. And we were talking about this exact thing. And, you know, I sort of related it to him like this. This is what how I used to think about it, that it's it's like that saying in politics that, you know, when you see how the sausage gets made, you don't really want to eat it. That's how I sort of felt about religion because I saw behind the scenes and yeah, sure. It's a human thing, right? There's politics, there's finance, there's, there's all kinds of stuff that goes on that people don't want to talk about the uglier parts, right? Of people's lives. Yeah. That you, no, that's, that you probably were exposed that's to. That's right. Yeah. Uh-huh. My response to that in a sense was to reject it. What I didn't realize, which is what, being in a 12-step program helped me to understand is that in the absence of any kind of spiritual awareness or consciousness or practice in my life, I'd essentially put myself in the role of God. I thought I could call all the shots. I was living by my will, nobody else's. Mm, yeah, I could see quite readily <laughs> that that didn't work out terribly well for me. When I got sober, I knew that I needed help from a power greater than myself. And fortunately, in my case, I had some tools from the past. They were rusty, they were dull, but I still had them. And I was able to get them out and use them in a way that really was transformational for me. And one of the things that I started doing very early on is reading one psalm each day. You know, the book of Psalms had always been something that that I had been drawn to. I love poetry generally, and and really what these psalms are, are poems, often set to music. Originally, they were written sometimes as, as kind of the lyrics to songs that the ancient Hebrews would sing. And the the words really always had an impact on me. And I found that as I started reading them in recovery, I had a totally different relationship to what I found there. You read over and over this raw human emotion that these poets express. They feel pain. They feel regret. They feel loss. And and they're honest with their higher power about that stuff. Mm. They don't pull any punches, man. I mean, it's it's real. Yeah. And, and yeah. I saw in it things that I was feeling, but I also saw things that I that I wanted because despite you know those as they sometimes say lamentations, there was also hope. There was a desire for refuge and protection mm-hmm. from a power greater than themselves. That stuff was incredibly meaningful to me early in sobriety, just as it is today. One of the things that I think I look back on in early recovery is when we would get together with other people that were like us, the common bond of having gone through such enormous pain and knowing and being able to recognize that in others and being able to want to help them and how that transformed us by, and that really to me is the mysticism of a a sense of a higher power is that when you act in a way to help others and you don't exactly know what to say or what you're doing, but you go with the intention of helping and doing something, that to me is an act of a higher power at play because a lot of times we don't have the words. You know, I'm sure you're asked to speak. I'm asked to speak sometimes. And moments before I do that, I, I always, 
just have a silent moment to say, you know, right about now would be a good time to give me some really smart things to say. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, if I could just say something that would help yeah. Yeah. somebody, then I'll feel like what I did here today was worthwhile. You know, and that's meaningfulness. But you get a special feeling of being able to recognize the pain in others when you have gone through that yourself. And that common bond, I think, is what a recovery program, and especially what you're talking about, the tools that in your tool bag, using the Psalms, and being able to relate to people that have that common in their past. Because right now, I really want to go back and read all those, right? I want to do it, man. (laughs) So when you were going through the process, I mean, in scripture, you had you had probably been familiar with before being a preacher's son, right? You know, maybe we paid attention to it a little bit more in certain things, or maybe certain things mm-hmm. that stuck out to us. Besides the aha moments, did you feel a sense of of the glow of, of something warmer and something bigger coming to speak to you and giving you direction and guidance on where you should go? Is that what it was that made you want to write the book? I have to tell you that the the overwhelming feeling that that started was one of peace. And, and I realized that I had never really felt peace before in my life. Not like that. That I was actually okay. <laughs> and, and that everything was okay yeah. as it is. Yeah. And then it wasn't mine to solve. It wasn't mine to fix. Right. That was this, uh, a feeling of release, of freedom. And, and I began to want more of that. And so, you know, interestingly, I... You know, I, I decided to go on a, a spiritual retreat, a silent retreat to an abbey, a Trappist um, monastery in Western New York, the Abbey of the Genesee. And part of the reason that I went is because I knew that, you know, the monks several times a day, they chanted the Psalms and it was something that was important to me and, and big in my recovery. And so I went and not with a lot of expectations, but just because I felt like it was the right thing to do. Just want to remind our listeners, we're talking about no cell phones, no internet, right? <laughs> and no talking, right? So, you know, you got you to listen to that head, those voices inside your head and your spirit for that whole time. And when, when I was reading that about you, I thought, man, that's something that, that I think I might want to, I want to try. And I'm thinking that, that this is something I wanted you to talk a little bit more about is what, what was that experience like when you got into that place? It's a beautiful thing that isn't necessarily a beautiful thing at first. I mean, I had this incredible experience when I rolled up and, and I'm not real big on, uh, I don't know what, to, even how to. My higher power doesn't necessarily wave a lot of flags. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, he's kind of like, he's kind of like, oh, you got it yet? Oh, or should I try and show you one more time, right? <laughs> it's more subtleness than directness. I try not to read too much into things these days as well, because that was a bit of a shortcoming of mine and still can be. But but I roll up to this place and kind of get situated and I'm and I'm gonna walk from the retreat house to to the chapel for the evening service they call Vespers, right? And I walk outside. It was like a light shower that was but but the sun was setting. The way that, that it came together, just the clouds just started to glow orange. That's incredible, man. That's incredible. And, and I turn around behind me, and there's not one, but a, two rainbows, a double rainbow across the sky over the retreat house. Yeah. yeah. And, and I just felt this incredible sense of you are here, where you belong. 
And it, it was overwhelming. When you enter an experience like that of, of silence, you know, the first day or two, all of those thoughts are still bouncing around in your head, pinging off of each other. But as you get into the rhythm of it, and it's meditation, and it's, you know, I spent a lot of time walking on trails that were in the area along the Genesee River. They started to get quieter, all of those thoughts, all of those, you know, inner voices to the point where I actually started to listen. And that, that was a beautiful and peaceful thing. And, and while I was there, I just, I don't have the, the arrogance to think that God talks to me personally, but I, I, I felt this feeling about the Psalms and about the experience that, that I had had. And, and I felt compelled to think about how, how could I share this with somebody else? How could you share what you found? And so that's really how the book was born. How did you start writing? Well, a lot of people will say, "Will say, you know that you know you ought to write a book," and 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 I, you know, <laughs> remarkably, you you ought to tell those stories you tell about mm-hmm. this and that and this and that. And I and I think, you know, there's a one of my favorite writers is Anne Lamott, and she talks about really simple things about being a writer, and she says, "Well, number one, you put your, you know what, in the chair, yes, <laughs> and number two, you get over your crappy first drafts, yeah, right? yeah." So when you started. Obviously, you had the inspiration to do it, and then you know beyond that, you had the, the the willingness to be able to listen to the direction from a higher power to do it, and to listen to the words as they came out of you, and not judge them, right? And that's the hardest thing when we write about things that are meaningful, often spiritual, is to just get out of the way, get out of the way. So, how did that work for you? How did how did it start for you to to just start this writing? What was that like for you? So, I, I thought about it. I, I meditated on it. I prayed about it. And for, for me, it was, if, if I'm trying to share what this gift that I received, it came to me one day at a time. I just did the same thing over again. You know, I started with Psalm 1. Once I decided I was going to you know, write this, I would read the Psalm. I would then spend some time just on different words and phrases and, and, and lines in the Psalm that, that spoke to me. And I'd meditate on those. And then I'd take out a, you know, leather bound journal and a pen and I'd start writing my thoughts and I would pray for some kind of guidance. And uh, yeah, and so I would do one per day and went through it, you know, the same way that I read them the first time in sobriety, just reading and writing. Then I'd set it aside and the next day I'd do number two and the next day I'd do number three. And some days were easier than others, I can tell you that. But that's like life, right? That's, that's like life. When you're getting into the book and you, you had a good run, and you were really, you saw it showing up, it started to take some shape, you know what I mean? What did that feel like? How did it feel to know that, you know what, this is actually a thing, it's gonna happen? To be honest with you, total gratitude. Because it's not me. I know. You know? I know. I, I, I get that. I sort of get that. Man, man. I, I mm-hmm. can tell you all these different times in life. I thought, well, just as you were saying, I, sh- I really should write a book. And, and I, I'd have these ideas and I'd, you know, start jotting some things down on paper. And the reality, it was always about me. It was always about, oh, 
I want to be an author. Um, and so I will write a book. And this was such a radically different experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it came from another place. Yeah. And so the whole time I felt like I was just an instrument for this. Yeah. I get that. This is just coming th- through me. And, and so I was grateful. When we go to the output creative stage of, of who we are, it's almost always a culmination of everything we've prepared ourselves to be in that moment. And people say that about musicians. Well, how do, you, how do you write that song? How do you play that solo? How do you play the guitar? And I'm thinking, if I'm thinking about it, I'm not able to do it. <laughs> I'm not able to do it. If my head is, you know, like, you know, I can remember playing CYO basketball when I was a kid and, and being painfully aware of everything I did, especially foul shooting, because I was not a good foul shooter, right? And I knew it. So every time I got up to the foul line, I'm thinking, now do this and do that and, and uh, bounce it twice because that's your routine. And, and I just couldn't make them. <laughs> you know, I just couldn't do it. Uh, yeah. I know from what I, I've seen about really skilled writers that I've seen, most often they'll describe it as it doesn't come from me, it comes through me. It comes through me. And they're not so bold as to say that that's really them. You know, sure, they sit down and they do it and they prepare themselves to get ready and they maintain all the environmental things to go into that moment. But almost always it comes through us. And sometimes it's very painful and very slow and very ugly. And sometimes you can't get it down fast enough. You just can't write it fast enough. I have to admit there was a psalm or two during the course of this where I did get in my head a little bit. And I thought, oh, I need to, you know, I really want this one to be good. And, 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 and you know, I'd have to put the pen down, <laughs> yeah. pen down and it say, well, this is not happening yourself, you know, right I'm a now. very good writer. I'm a very good writer here. Oh, I thought that yeah. was really brilliant the way I did, used the yeah. twist on those words and the way I just had that great insight. That's when you're really in trouble, I think. <laughs> that's when you're in trouble, man. And it, quite honestly, that's when I'm in trouble in life. Whether it's writing or it's anything else, when when I yeah, it's not it's not going to work. But the book came out in in March of 2021. That's got to be exciting, right? It's like just it is exciting. Man, it's like um, you know, it, 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 it's it's again, it's a really gratifying thing. It, it, you know, when I got to the point of having a, a, a manuscript and and I edited it a few times, it wasn't it wasn't obvious what to do with it because I fully respect. And, and practice to the extent that I possibly can the 12-step view of a higher power and a, and a God of our understanding. Each one of us, each one of us has a higher power of our own understanding. And so I didn't have any desire at all to promote a particular sect or creed or, or my own understanding of a higher power. It's just, just the desire to open this resource up so that others can find what they want. Well, the challenge with that is that uh, it was probably a little bit too religious for certain uh, recovery publishers, and it wasn't anywhere near Christian enough for a lot of Christian. (laughs) Man, I can totally see that now. So how did it end up you got it published? How did that work out? Actually, it's, again, it's one of those things where, you know, a a reader at Westminster John Knox Press, um, which is affiliated with the Presbyterian Church, uh, read it, was moved by it, and and saw, I think she connected it to what she saw going on in the world, that this this is a major problem for our society. People are dying every day 
in every county of the United States from overdoses, from substance abuse disorder. And I think she felt a personal desire to want to be helpful and saw this as a pathway. So, you know, they reached out to me and um, we began kind of a long process of their core expertise is not in recovery. So um, they told me they were going to be sending it out to some people in that they know in the recovery field to get, you know, their reaction and response from it, which I thought, fantastic. <laughs> that just showed me these are the kind of people I want to work with. And, and they got some good feedback from that. We signed a contract and when, went through uh, quite a number of rounds of additional editing and, uh, and preparation of the manuscript. So it's difficult for us in the AA community too. And, and I, trust, trust me, I, I haven't said AA on any podcast as much as I've said it on this one. Right. And because um, when we deal with the press, when we deal with it, there are respectful rules within our tribe, so to speak, about how the way, you know, we all agree we're going to talk about it. And, you know, and that's really about respect. And I don't care what anybody yeah. else thinks about it, whether it's a cult or whatever. Fine, whatever. You know what I mean? If you need to explain it to yourself that way, that's okay. I have compassion for that. But I do know that when I ask people, uh, in the press to not say things a certain way and then they go ahead and do it anyway, which has happened to me more than one time, right? You know, I really, I struggle with that because it's like, please don't identify me as in this fashion. And then, and then the headline on, on the front page is, is Shannon, a member of blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm like, ah, oh, you guys, you know, but the, you just got to take the chance. And here's where I lay with it. If the intention is to do good things for people to help them, then I guess I'm okay on my side of the street. I guess my I'm broomed off, so to speak, as my as the sponsor would say. Listen, I, I've had some folks talk to me about that. I fully respect, you know, the the unspoken mores and even the you know the traditions of our tribe. I'm fully supportive of that and respectful of it. I, I think my publishers probably said things ways that I wouldn't necessarily have said them, and but at the same time. My hope is that I can reach out to people who may be struggling, who may be searching, who may not know where to turn, a welcoming presence. And so if I can do that, then I'm thankful and I'll ask for forgiveness for lines I may have crossed. And therein lies the reason why I wanted to have you on this this podcast, because when we did our little First level conversation. I mean, I, I always, especially when it comes from people who uh, are with a new book, and you, you kind of want to know what their intention is. You know, because my podcast really, this is really about people that are in recovery, not just from alcoholism or addiction. It's from trauma, you know, mental health, uh, physical disabilities, you know, like the eating disorder. Uh, it this this podcast is supposed to be uh, a place where people can come and find other people like them that are lanterns that show that, you know, here's how it can work for you. That's really what we're trying to do with Recovery Talks, the podcast, is say, hey, guess what? Tune in and here's somebody that's making it. And, you know, I know about all the stories that you may have in your past and your biography, meaning the listener, but you know what? There are people that do make it. And let me let me show some of them to you and, and maybe they can encourage you because that's the intention of what what guys like you and me are trying to do at the core of what we're trying to do is just say, look, there are ways, let us help you. Let us help you. 
you know, that's it. You know, because we feel this enormous sense that this gift has been given to us because we are sober now. And that is something that I think that I would, if you'd have told me, listen, man, if you'd have told me seven years ago that I'd be sitting here on a podcast talking to a person like you, I would have bet against you. I would have bet against you because I tried everything everything. And it just didn't work for me. And by some miracle of whatever, you know what I mean? I'm sitting here today, very healthy, you know, and, you know, sure, life happens, grief, life, whatever. But the bottom line is I don't have to drink about it anymore. I don't have to use drugs and alcohol and I can get through it. And I've got a, a, a group of friends that that I can call and they can tell me, yeah, dude, you need to get out of your diaper, man, and get on with it. Get up and help somebody else. Get over yourself. You know what I mean? And then I'll go, you're right. Thank you so much. You know what I mean? Or they'll listen to me or I'll listen to them. And and that's really what it's all about. You know, well, man, I want to just say thank you for for giving your time. And and I can't wait to get your book so I can read it. That's kind of a a strange way to do it when you interview somebody and not have read their book. But, you know, I think you understand. Um, Sometimes it doesn't always work out so pretty and neat. And and things don't line up in rows. But I, I will absolutely, you know, when I get back to your book, I'm going to be calling you, man. I'll probably be bugging you. I'll be that guy at the end of your driveway in the end of the bushes going, hey, but there's one more question. You know what I mean? <laughs> but, well, well, we would we would perhaps have to have to find it together. I, I think, um, you know, that's that's part of the beauty of this is we're not doing it alone. Yeah. And, and that's part of, you know, I have all kinds of gratitude for what you're doing with this podcast. Well, thanks, man. And, and all the other things you do with your life. Thank you, um, man. Thank that's, you, man. That, that's a model that, that we could all learn from. So, Yeah. I'm just, I just really am grateful because I often say to myself, dude, you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> You've got an article to turn in. You should probably figure that out and get writing <laughs> or a podcast today. Oh, but you know what? I want to say thank you to all our listeners who tuned in for this episode. And you know, you can find us now. We, we, we're kind of getting smarter at this. Uh, you can find us at recoverytalks.org. Hey. So if you can go there and then you can find out wherever our podcasts are. And of course, uh, please subscribe and download because that's how we know that you like what we're talking about, especially when it comes to specific episodes. Also, like and share and follow Rock and Recovery pages for 91.3 The Summit. So to all our guests out there, stay tuned. For the next episode of Recovery Talks, the podcast. And until then, everybody, just stay standing and steady on.